Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie podcast, GCast episode 84. And I'm on with a friend who is like a sister. Her name is Tia Clinton. And we met through Friends of Friends, and she is also part of the Badass Brigade, which you will find out for yourself a little bit into the program. So welcome to the podcast, Tia. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad it finally worked out. Tia is very busy, y'all. She is working on her PhD. She'll get into that a little bit. So I guess now is a perfect time. Who are you in your own words briefly before we get kind of deeper into your story? Oh, God, who am I? Uh, Such an elaborate question. Um, I'm a black girl from Brooklyn in simplest terms. I like it. Very passionate about social justice and social justice issues, which is why um, I came into grad school because I was like, there are lots of things wrong around me and I need some additional skill sets to do something about them. Um, I love that. That was largely my motivation for getting my PhD. And it's pretty badass. I mean, like, I'm going to be a doctor. (laughs) Yes, you are, girl. Yes, you are. I love it. So I guess we can dive right in because yours is going to be the ninth story, um, the ninth episode in the stories of sobriety arc, and it's a 10-episode arc. So you are bringing up the rear, which is pretty cool. Um, And I really felt it was important to chat with you because you are in recovery and you um, are a woman of color. Um, And I kind of want to talk more about this with you later when we kind of get to the other side of um, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now um, to kind of chat about, because I think listeners sometimes aren't clear about how now the opioid epidemic is now a public health concern, whereas this is not a new crisis, right? And so I wanted some of your insight because I have thoughts and listeners always know I have thoughts and I have opinions and I don't have a problem sharing them, but I always like to um, have other people that sometimes are smarter perhaps in certain arenas than myself to add value. and kind of connect some of the dots, right? So Tia, tell us, what was it like? And again, um, you don't have to go elaborately into your story, but whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us, we would love to hear what it was like, and then we'll get to what happened and what it's like today. Okay, so I feel like... um, when I first came into the rooms, my story wasn't like everyone else's. Sure. The more time I spent in the rooms, I found that there were much more commonalities. But um, I'd like to say that I was a pretty good kid. I was like the goody two-shoes kid. Um, I didn't smoke or drink in high school. I didn't do drugs. I would sort of poke fun of my friends for doing those things because I'd be like, you don't need to do that to have fun. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're engaging in these things. And then when I was 17, I visited a friend um, in college and I drank for the first time. And it was like mind blown. (laughs) I was just like, this is so much fun. And, um, you know, I just wanted to do more of it. And so 
when I had that first drink that first night, I thought, you know, I'm worried because what if I end up saying things that lie in the recesses of my mind? What if I end up doing things that I really shouldn't do? But then at the end of the night, I didn't say any of those things that I didn't do any of those things. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm safe. But by the end of my story, all of those things would have come true, right? I would have ended up doing and saying things that were not intrinsic to the person that I am. Um, so after that senior year, I went to college and I went to a pretty liberal arts, I went to a PWI, um, a liberal arts white college. And it was the best. Is PWI just for people who are attempting to follow along predominantly white institution? Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, it was a predominantly white institution and drinking was a large part of the culture. And part of the reason why I like drinking was because I am, I'm an introvert and I was very socially awkward. I'm still socially awkward, but when I was drinking, I felt more outgoing. I felt more part of myself. Um, and that was really, really attractive to me. And so I felt like, I think I drank the same amount that everybody else drank in college. Um, but I just really, I really, really liked it. And then my senior year, I went abroad. Um, and I had a traumatic experience. I got robbed. Um, and the person that robbed me threatened my life. He said, I'll kill you. And so, because I, I was like, I'm from Brooklyn. Like, you're not finna rob me. Like, I'm not afraid of you. And then he, like, he had this weapon and he was like, well, I'll kill you. And I was like, oh, you got it, bro. Um, and so after that, I started experiencing depression and fear. Um, and I think it was around that time that my drinking started to pick up a little bit. And so in the transition from graduating from college and entering, you know, what I consider really early adulthood, my early 20s, um, alcohol sort of became part of an essential part of my social life. Um, because I was establishing myself as a young professional. What do young professionals do? They go to happy hour. Um, at the same time, I am a member of the LGBT community, but I was not out um, in high school. I came out in college. And so, you know, I came back home to Brooklyn and I was like, well, I don't really have a queer community to call home. Like, I don't, I don't know any queer people. Um, where are they? Where do they stay? How do I find them? And so my primary primary way of connecting with other queer people, other lesbians, was going to parties. Um, and that involved a lot of drinking. And so it sort of became part of my uh, persona that I was one of the girls that like goes to lots of parties and knows lots of lesbians and parties. Like I remember saying to someone, I feel like I know at some point, like I feel like I know every black lesbian in Brooklyn because I was just partying that much. I used to go out on Friday nights and Saturday nights and my friends would call me up and they'd be like, 
where's the party? And I'd have the rundown of where the parties were for that week, um, who was playing, how much it was to get in, and we decide where we were going. Um, as I got older and I started establishing a larger base of queer friends, um, I started throwing my own house parties. And so uh, partying and being a party girl just became a larger part of my identity um, until things started going wrong. Um, so maybe in my mid-20s, I entered into a, sort of an emotionally abusive relationship that I stayed in much longer than I needed to. And during that time, my drinking then increased. I was also going through some other social problems and social dramas. And the next thing I knew, um, I would be in the house drinking by myself and like binge drinking. And I didn't understand how I'd gone from a social drinker to someone that just wanted to drink for the sake of drinking. Um, and so I, I ended up in this weird cycle in which um, I drank because I was depressed and I was depressed because I drank. And um, over time that started to affect my relationships. I became dishonest with my friends. I was not fulfilling obligations that I had. I was becoming very, very selfish. And in my mind, I felt like I wasn't hurting anybody but myself by drinking, but that wasn't the case sure. at all. And so during the same time as I'm working, um, my friends are getting master's degrees, they're getting advanced degrees. Um, and I'm like, you know, I'm not trying, I'm not the type of person that gets left behind. Like Clintons don't get left back. That <laughs> is so, so funny. I'm like, okay, well you need um, additional skill sets. It's about that time to go back to school. And um, I had decided that I was no longer going to go to law school and that I wanted to go to grad school. And I told my friends that if I, by this time I'd gotten into Michigan and I said, you know, I'll stop drinking when I go to grad school. Like, just let me, leave me alone for now. Let me drink. When I go to grad school, everything will be fine. I have to concentrate. It's a very serious academic program. Um, it's a marathon, so I can't do it. And I came to Michigan and that absolutely did not work <laughs> at all. Um, in fact, the additional stress of being in school made me drink more. And so feeling isolated because my friends and my family were on the East Coast. And then grad school socialization is much different from undergrad. So I found that I didn't make friends as quickly as I did um, in college years. And then when people did socialize and come out of their bubbles, they did happy hour. And so there was a really big tension uh, there because if I went to happy hour, then I was going to drink and um, do things that I didn't want to do. Um, but if I didn't, then I felt like I was not going to make friends. Um, and I struggled with that for a very long time. Um, let me backtrack. During the 
during my early 20s, I'm my early 20s, my mid 20s, I did start going to a program of recovery, but I didn't take it seriously. I was in a room full of people that were much older than me that, that I didn't feel like shared my experiences. And I felt like, well, they took lots of years to get sober. You know, they're in this room and they're in their uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Maybe I just need to give myself more time. And so throughout that, I would attend meetings, but I would remember that uh, there was no requirement for membership. There was only one requirement for membership. And so um, throughout from mid-20s up until grad school, I was still going to meetings, but I just, I, it didn't grab hold of me. Um, and I tried different sponsors. I tried different things. Um, but ultimately, I, I decided when I felt something that made me uncomfortable, when something made me angry, when I, essentially when I wasn't happy and I had to confront my feelings, I would just say, fuck it. Right. And I would go out and drink because um, that's what I wanted to do. That was my coping mechanism. And so it took me a very long time to realize that I could not, that my faith could not be conditional, um, that I had to not drink no matter what. And that was the way to do this program. Um, I had what some of us call a spiritual experience where I was experiencing some financial difficulties, uh, which is one of my triggers. Um, and happens a lot in grad school, financial difficulties. <laughs> um, and so I had an unexpected cost come up and I was furious. I was fearful. I was afraid. I was angry. Um, and I just, I was obsessing. And so I went out and I drank. Um, previous to this, I had applied for a job and a grant to help me through these financial difficulties. Um, and so after that relapse, two weeks after, I found out that I got both the job and the grant. And so my financial woes were gone. And in that moment, I broke down and I cried. I mean, I sobbed. Um, and it takes a, 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 it takes a lot for me to cry, but that was my moment of surrender because I realized that I can't, God is always going, my higher power, who I call God, is always going to take care of me no matter what. If, ands, or buts, and I cannot afford to take my will back under any circumstances. Um, and so since that day, I have been sober. That's awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank so, you. It sounds like, you know, and, and one of the reasons that I decided to do this arc is because um, we need to smash the stigma around substance use disorder, alcoholism, addiction, and normalize the fact that it exists. Um, not so much normalize it so that people don't get the help that they need, but normalize the fact that this problem exists and it's not going anywhere. And a lot of people that need help are hidden in plain sight. 
right? right. Um, they're in universities all across this country and in other places across the globe. So one thing that stood out to me in your story was you drink the exact same as your fellow students, your friends. However, the impact was different, you know, on you than it was on them and some of the reasons why, why you drank. So what is life not like now as a sober woman who is, um, you know, has other identities as well um, and is, a, you know, being a grad student working on your PhD is a huge identity of yours. So what is it like now in terms of socializing, but also in terms of larger life outside of socialization, but your actual academics? Um, and just whatever else you're working on and doing in life? Well, I would say it's difficult, but it's better than it was. Um, and I would say it's difficult because I, it's important to know that uh, recovery isn't a magic coin or a genie. It doesn't transform your life immediately. It's progress, not perfection. And so, um, I was actually talking with a friend about this the other day. A large part of like my internal work is trying to figure out who I am as a person in sobriety. Um, because the last time I was sober, I was 17, right? <laughs> so that's over a decade um, of trying to get to know, uh, over a decade of drinking, um, and so I'm still trying to get to know who I am as this person that does not engage in any sort of mind altering substances. Um, for me, my social life is, it's very different, partially because I live in Michigan and not in Brooklyn anymore, but also because- But isn't that more, so much more fun? I'm being facetious. Okay, I was like, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, there are some benefits to being in Ann Arbor for sure. And there are. And Brooklyn's pretty rad though too. Ann Arbor has its good points, but slightly different. Anyway. It does. We digress. So, um, I mean, my social life, like I said, is much different because my social life previously revolved around drinking and partying. So sure. I do not go to uh a bunch of parties anymore if i'm in brooklyn and my friends are going out then i want to spend time with them and i'll do that but that only happens a couple of times a year um i do a lot more dinners a lot more movie dates game nights um and picked up new hobbies like i bought a sewing machine because i really like clothing and i want to teach myself to sew and i've made I think three or four jumpers out of dresses so far. That's awesome. Um, I picked I need, up Jamie. I need a Tia exclusive, a oh, Tia Clinton. We'll make it happen. Okay, good. <laughs> I made, no, I made, um, I picked up gaming, so I bought a PS4 randomly, and I was like, I'm just going to start playing video games again. Why? Because... It's fun. It keeps me safe, sane, and sober. Um, and it's a good time. So I play lots of video games when I'm not doing my work and reading and going to meetings. And 
um, sometimes I feel boring, but I'd rather be boring than to be using. Like it's just, it was a very destructive life. Yeah, it sounds um, like it. So when you talk about work, Tia, what are you studying? Okay, so I am a sociologist. I study um, race, stratifica- race stratification and education broadly. Um, my focus, though, is on issues of the Black-White Achievement Gap, the school-to-prison pipeline, um, the discipline gap, and restorative practices. Wow. Did you get a chance to go to uh, Nicole... Hannah Jones, I think. Oh, she, she had a great a weeks ago. talk. I um, actually had work that day. Okay. And so I went for the first 45 minutes and I had to leave, but I wish I could have stayed for the entire thing. It was really good. I went to it. It was really good. So yeah, we'll have to talk about that um, more. So tell anyone who is not really familiar with all of what you just spoke about, um, so obviously there is an achievement gap right between white students and students of color, but are you specifically looking at black students and not just all students of color or students of color as a, as a group? So for the dissertation, I'm specifically looking at black students. Okay. So black and white students are the, that's yeah. who we're comparing. Okay. And that there's this achievement gap. And are you theorizing about why that is? Are you working off of currently accepted theories? And how does that all work for those of us that don't have PhDs? (laughs) So essentially what I want to argue is that the achievement gap and the discipline gap and the school to prison pipeline are inextricably linked. Um, And so I, in my mind, achievement and discipline have an inverse relationship. Um, And so it's funny that the time in which, around the time in which the achievement gap started to close, uh, which is between between the 80s and 90s, um, we also had the introduction of things like the Gun-Free Schools Act and the introduction of zero tolerance policies. Now, not, I'm not arguing by any means for scholars out there that um, the introduction of zero tolerance policies created or are the sole reason for the achievement gap, but I think that they are a factor in it because we do know that SES is the largest variable in explaining um, the achievement gap. And so what I want to argue in my dissertation is that in order for um, us to address both of these phenomena, which I feel like are huge for Black students in education, we should be paying more attention to socio-emotional learning, um, which ties into restorative practices and the building, uh, the conscious building of community within schools. Um, It's not flushed out all the way yet, (laughs) clearly. Um, But yeah, that's what I want to look at. That's awesome. Um, And you're familiar with um, I think it's Ron Brown Preparatory School. Have you heard of that in D.C.? It's a school j- dedicated to young men of color. Oh, no. Tell me more. So they do an arc on Code Switch, NPR's podcast. Okay. 
And I feel like that was 2017. They did a three episode arc on Ron Brown where they followed them over the course of a year um, or some period during their first year of matriculation. And so they only had ninth graders at this point. Okay. Now they have ninth and 10th graders. The young men are called young Kings instead of students. Um, they actually see staff members that look like them. They are black and people of color, um, but largely black, uh, men and some black women. Um, every morning they start off with a huddle. Um, they, yeah, so I'll send you the link to the website and take a look around there. Um, they are doing their best not to suspend any students for any reason, because part of the problem is that students of color, specifically black students, are being penalized more than their white student counterparts mm -hmm. for the exact same thing or less. Right. And... As a result, you're seeing less students in class. And so what happens when students aren't coming to class, they are doing something else with their time and or they are further, um, they're walking away from graduation day, right? Um, and if you're walking away from graduation day, it means you're not walking towards it. So, you know, once you graduate, there are oftentimes more opportunities than if you don't graduate. Um, and so they do their very, very best. They have had to suspend at least one or two students, but they have, that is like a last, 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 last resort. Right. So um, definitely would be worth checking out, even doing a visit there, um, because DC is not too far from New York. Um, you can make it a fun, you know, business and pleasure trip. but. Um, yeah. So what else, if anything, do you want to share with student, with students, with listeners about kind of, you know, recovery? Um, and I feel like you and I should definitely talk again mm -hmm. to talk about um, kind of the war on drugs and how that's changed tunes um, oh, yes. because we could go down that rabbit hole and then... <laughs> this episode would be like four hours long. Um, and I don't think anyone wants a four hour podcast, even if they enjoy listening to this podcast. So thank you all for the love and support um, of what I'm doing here. But yeah, tell me if there's anything else that you want to share with anyone, everyone who's listening about kind of recovery and, um, any like last words of wisdom? I think the last thing that I want to say is I want to encourage people um, in recovery to dream big and to think big um, because I, uh, I was talking to a friend who was also in program and she was like, I can't believe, you know, that you're getting your PhD, you're doing such wonderful things, um, and it's really an inspiration. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that she said that, but it also made me feel like lots of folks think that when we get sober, our only job is to get sober and to work these part-time jobs or these low-wage jobs. Um, but the, my reason for getting sober is getting my life back. 
You know what I mean? And that doesn't mean my dreams or my aspirations stop. It's a mechanism for me to achieve those things. And so um, part of the reason why I stopped drinking was because I felt like I can't fulfill God's purpose for me if I continue along this route. And so I know early sobriety is very, very difficult. Um, but once you feel comfortable in your skin again, go do those things that you said that you were going to do before. Go open that business. Go take those classes. Go take that trip. Um, this is not, people don't get sober to become uh boring and stagnant we get sober to to have lives again so i just i want to say that and impress that upon people because it she shouldn't have had to say that to me we should all be doing those big things sure yeah and it's i mean it's true it's like um you raise a great point um if someone is able to say they have recovered from cancer for example right? They've been in remission for five years or 10 years because there are mile markers there too. Um, people celebrate time mm -hmm. of being cancer free. And that's not dissimilar from people marking time or milestones or anniversaries in a 12 step program or in another pathway to recovery. So, you know, people are always impressed when someone who is a two-time cancer survivor, for example, runs a, finishes a marathon. Mm -hmm. They don't even really care about the time. It's just the fact that they <laughs> did something, right? That, that powerful. Um, that was probably a huge dream that many people don't do with no cancer or, you know, <laughs> no different abilities. So, I really appreciate you adding that because, um, you know, to have a life that you are actually proud to have, um, and it sounds like you have a lot of gratitude for the life that you live today, mm -hmm. is a huge deal. And it's, I mean, it's even huge that you got accepted to the University of Michigan, a PhD program, even when your life was a mess, you know, <laughs> like you didn't get sober until you had already been accepted into the program. Yeah. So um, that's a big deal. And to continue and not allow this thing that is a big deal derail you, but allow you to, uh, it has propelled you actually to do more and to re-engage in your life more is a really big, big deal. And so I want to honor that and the contribution you are going, that you're currently making in academia um, and beyond. So big, big deal. All right, friends. So sadly we have to wrap up. Um, I just picked this story actually before Tia and I started speaking and it's like kind of perfect. And that typically is how things happen. So I'm reading, um, from humans of New York and they are in Syria at this time. Um, or they're, they're sharing stories of Syrian Americans. And this was December 2015 and I'm on Jordan and it appears to be a woman. And she says, and she, her hair is covered. It looks like hijab. And she says, I knew immediately that I would have to let go of my dreams. I had a very brilliant teacher in elementary school. She was my role model. I didn't remember deciding to be a teacher 
so much as I remember deciding that I wanted to be just like her. My whole life became about studying. I'd learned every lesson early so that I could participate in class. When my siblings were playing games around the house, I'd plug my ears and work on my homework. Education was my passion. Sorry. Hey, shush. All right, education was my passion. It was all I thought about. And then moving forward, she talks about getting pregnant and moving to the States. Um, I know nothing about it. More than anything, I want to finish my education, but mostly I hope that whatever is waiting for me there is better than what I've gone through. So she has big dreams to continue. All right. So thank you so much for being here, Tia. I really appreciate it. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there's only one of us. So friends, thanks so much for the love and support. I really appreciate it. If you want to um, support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the type A hippie. And this is the type A hippie podcast. She cast episode 84. My name is Chidima. Namaste.